That is just so cool. I mean, when in your life do you sit down with a good friend and say, okay, so tell me how you think I'm doing as a human being. (laughs) Yeah, well, churches do that even less. You know, that just that sense of, how are we doing? Always asking that question, why are we doing what we're doing? And, oh yeah, let's remember why we're here and, and who this church belongs to and uh, what he has called us to in terms of the big picture, to be his presence in the world, but then talking about the specifics of that. So I, I am just really excited about God bringing this, uh, this whole vitality experience to the life of Apple. This is really, really fun. Well, I came across a story that I thought you all would appreciate this week. This one fellow said that he was on his way to uh, work one morning. He pulled up to a stoplight, and he noticed that there was a, an SUV in front of him. He calls it an interesting SUV. He said, the owner of this SUV is clearly a person of deep loyalty. The spare tire mounted on the back had the words Texas Longhorns and an orange steer head icon on it. The trailer hitch displayed another steer head icon and the word Texas. The license plate frame was boarded with the words Longhorns on top and University of Texas at the bottom. But something, he says, didn't add up. That license plate frame was screwed into a blue and white Illinois Land of Lincoln license plate with a picture of old Abe himself on it. Now, I live in Illinois, and the SUV's license plate shows that this driver now does as well. I assume the owner of this SUV had moved, but as yet had not identified with his new home and appeared to have made no plans for changing loyalties. Who would do that kind of thing? Move to a new town and maintain their loyalties to an old team. That's outrageous. But it's normal human behavior. And this, uh, this writer goes on to say, you know, when we move, we often go through a slow transition of loyalties to our new home. And so it is, or at least it can be as a Christian, when we come to Christ, the kingdom of God becomes our home, but the kingdom of this world does not leave our hearts easily. The great challenge of the Christian is to overcome divided loyalties and fully identify with God's kingdom. I just couldn't help but thinking that that is another way of expressing what we have been after in this series. We've been, we've been imagining. We've been imagining what, what would our lives individually look like? What would our life together collectively as Applewood Community Church, what would it look like if we as God's people really lived out what we say we believe? And I know all along that it, it sounds cynical. And it's because it is. I, I'm just not convinced that God's people in, uh, in this country are really living out what they say they believe. The $10,000 question, maybe it's even worth more than that, I don't know. Are people interested in knowing Jesus Christ or knowing more about Jesus Christ as a result of being with us. And I don't mean briefly. You know, we can, we can speak a quick word, or we can hand out a track, or we can, we can do a, a quick good deed. I'm talking over the long haul. I'm talking those folks who know us pretty well and spend a fairly regular 
period of time with us. They observe us over time and they are able to pick out the themes of our life. Are they aware that we are followers of Jesus Christ? Does that raise any interest in knowing more about him due to the way that we live? We must never forget, my friends, that the New Testament language for the word church, we've looked at this, means called out ones. And that just, of course, begs the questions of called out of what? Called out of where? Listen to what Peter wrote to those believers in the first century who were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. He said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Eugene Peterson writes it this way in the message. You are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instrument to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. So we've been asking, What if God's people really lived their lives as if that were true? Not casually, but with serious intent, not with a vague sense of, you know, I'm pretty sure that God did something nice for me and uh, that he loves me, but with a, a passion, a sense of certainty, the God of this universe, the creator and the sustainer of all life, loves me and did the unimaginable for me. And you are looking excited. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> wow. How would that cause us to live if we, if we really did believe that? And so we've been exploring, went on a journey to try to better understand God's love because that is the starting point. Scripture's clear. Salvation happens because... Of the love of God. It's the unconditional, perfect, never more, never less. Loves us no matter what, always did, always will, never going away kind of love. It's like a love that we have never experienced in the human realm. And if we open ourselves to a love like that, and that is the call of the gospel, then we simply cannot be the same before we experienced that kind of love. And so then... We've added to that, to the language that Scripture uses to describe people who are apart from God. The Bible does not use words like, well, they're a pretty nice bunch. They're people with potential if they're just given a chance. They need a little boost. Oh, you know the language. It uses language like rebellious, like enemies of God, vipers, worthless. Now, whether we like it or not, these are the biblical descriptors of people who are apart from God, the unredeemed. You've got to take it up with the author. I didn't come up with those terms. But there's another really important truth that, that not only does God love people like this and has paid the price for their sinful rebellion against him through the death of his son, he doesn't stop at that. He gives them his spirit 
the presence of God in you. This is not the Star Wars force be with you. This is God be with you. God is in you. God is in me as the redeemed. God is living in us, working to fill us, to overflowing with the presence and the character of Christ Jesus so that our lives begin to take on his character and his passion. Okay, sounds familiar? You've heard this? Just nod your head, I'll feel better, okay? Okay, so we, and, and, and really, we've, we've been over all of this for, for one reason, so that we can elevate our thinking about salvation, about our life in Christ. Let's be honest. We get passive. We get lethargic. We get rather ho-hum, I am saved. And we need to elevate this to that category of big deal. This is bigger than any big that we've ever experienced. And we need for it to affect our lives on a daily basis so that when people watch our lives, they get to know us. Where do they decide that our loyalties lie? When they get to know us, what do they see and what do they hear that, that tells them what is most important to us? Some of you have heard the story, I'm sure, from Cam Polo's old book, You Can Make a Difference. He was on the train one time in London and told of two men who were sitting in the car with him and one of the men suddenly had a seizure and fell to the floor of the car. And Cam Polo said it was, it was scary. But his friend just immediately jumped to the floor to help him and took off his jacket and rolled it up and put it under his head as a pillow and wiped the perspiration from his forehead and and just talked gently to him. And in a few minutes, the seizure was over. And he helped lift his friend gently back into the seat. And then he turned to Campolo and he said, he said, I hope hope you'll forgive us. He said, sometimes this happens two or three times a day. And then he went into the story and explained. He said, my buddy and I were in Vietnam together and we were both wounded in the same battle and I had bullets in both of my legs and he had a bullet in his shoulder. And for some reason, the helicopter that was supposed to come for us, well, it it never did. And my friend picked me up and he carried me for three and a half days through the jungle. The Viet Cong were sniping at us the whole way. You need to understand, he was in more agony than I was. Repeatedly, I begged him to drop me and just save himself, but he wouldn't let me go. He got me out of that jungle, mister. He saved my life. I don't know how he did it, and I don't know why he did it, but he did. So it was about four years ago, I found out that he had this seizure condition. So I sold my house in New York, took the money that I made from the sale, and I came over here to London to care for him. And then he looked at me and he said this, you see, mister, after what he did for me, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. That is where Paul has taken us in our Romans 12 text. Do we really understand what God has has done for us? 
Are we moved to response? Is there, is there just that sense of, oh, when we think about Christ's suffering and death as payment for our sin, for my sin, for your sin, when we think about what we have been saved from, is there something in us that just cries out, how can I respond to a love like that? How do I respond to that kind of amazing and undeserved love? And so we go back to Romans 12 this morning. We're actually going to read from 1 John in a little bit as well. But let's start again with Romans 12. And we'll start right at the first verse of that chapter. And you remember the doxology that, that just explodes from Paul as he is writing this letter. And, and as a result of God's greatness and his amazing grace and this undeserved salvation that he's given to both Jews and Gentiles, Paul then launches into the the words of our text. Let's stand and read together. Here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, we've got to read that one more time. What's the motivation here? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. We know that that's Paul's answer to that question. How do I respond to a love like this? His response is to place oneself on the altar before God. To become a living sacrifice. And remember, we learned that the, that the language there is not, it's not an exhortation. Paul is not commanding it. It's a, it's a gentler language. It's a, it's a plea. It's, it's a begging. I urge you to offer your bodies. It's, a, it's an appeal to their reason based on what he has said about who God is and what he has done. So, <clears throat> let's, Don, can we put those verses back on the board? Oh, good, they're there. Great. Here's the plea. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think of yourself with sober judgment. So, what's the key to successfully putting ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice? In response to God's love, this call to lay ourselves on the altar, to be living sacrifices. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and talk to him for just a couple minutes. What's the key? What do you see offered in those verses? Okay, we ready? What do you think? What, what's, what seems to be the theme that's, that's flowing through there? 
kind of the, the, the first step, if you will, the necessary step. Good. All in or all out. We don't like to think of those terms. Okay, I don't like to think in those terms. Terms of our, our commitment for Christ. But yeah, I, you'd be hard-pressed to not see that, um, even, even in the life of Jesus when he called people to, to follow him. Fairly significant decision. What else? Exactly. <laughs> Monica's neighbor said trying harder is not the answer. <clears throat> What's when when you when you read these verses or these phrases kind of abbreviated from the verses, what uh, what do you see there in terms of the individual? What's What's the individual supposed to do, to use that word do? Okay. Die to self. Yeah, yeah. The renewing of the mind. Yeah. Be transformed. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. We're going to see it just a little bit more closely what that is from John's text. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think of yourself with sober judgment. And, and I would suggest to you that the, the significant step of placing ourselves on the altar as living sacrifices in response to the amazing love of God is we need to be people who think correctly. It starts with our thinking. It's about correct thinking regarding ourselves. And, and specifically, I would say this thinking about our place in life's scheme of things. You remember last week, we looked a little bit further when when Paul says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And we suggested that, you know, one of the problems that human beings have is that they think too much of themselves. And then Paul also wrote to the, to the Corinthian believers that, that in the context of that body and some of the issues that they were facing, there were some people who were thinking too little of themselves. And, and I suggested to you that, that the problem isn't really so much that, that we think too much or that we think too little. We simply think too much of ourselves. Think of ourselves way too much. John gets up in the morning and thinks, what am I going to do today? That's probably truer for all of us, John, than we want to admit. You remember when we talked about our role in life as living for God's glory. It's living in a way that gives Him glory in everything and everywhere. We said, this is God's world. And there is no place in it that He does not have the right to be. It's His world. We talked about the glory of God as having to do with the the size and the weight of his presence. Some of the older Hebrew language that gives us that hint. It's the idea that God is a heavy weight. We would say God is a big deal. And so the distinguishing mark, I really believe, of a living sacrifice is a life lived in such a way that it points to the very big and all-important presence of God in daily life, in everything. Let me say that again. The distinguishing mark of a living sacrifice is a life lived in such a way that it points to the very big and all-important presence of God in daily life and in everything. 
A person who lives as a daily sacrifice lives as if life is not about them. And they're right. It's not. Life is not about us. Life is about God. And we need to understand, to remember, the most significant truth about life in this fallen world in which we find ourselves. What makes life so fallen is that God's place as God, the creator, the sustainer of life, is no longer recognized. Not many people give a hoot about God. That's Paul's argument, Romans chapter 1. The mark of the sin nature, and sometimes it can be very, very subtle, is a focus upon self. And focus upon self means that I'm not focused upon God in the way that He deserves. Are you with me? And the reason that is so is because we are living in a world that is not neutral. We must never forget that there is an enemy at work in this world who hates God. And he will do anything to see glory taken from God. Here's the thing. Either God gets the glory that he deserves or not. There there really isn't any middle ground. There is no room for God to get some glory and for me to also get a little glory for myself. But that's so often the way that we we live our lives. and, And I'll be honest, I think this is the reason for my skepticism. I think this is the reason why there are not more folks that live around us who have any interest in God. Because those who claim to be his people are often busy living their lives, well-intentioned, good folks, very moral, nice people, we would say. But they're living their lives as if God is really not all that important. We check in on a Sunday morning and we do a little worship. We might go to a Bible study. We'll have a little devotion, a little prayer. Is that it? Really? Is that what the God of the universe who created us for himself desires? When we live for ourselves, we become glory thieves. God does not get the credit that he deserves from those who have been given so much. And we cannot ever think that he is okay with that. Here's how David Wells puts it in his book. It's called God in the Wasteland. He says it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. This is weightlessness. Harsh words. 
Brothers and sisters, Paul is exhorting God's people in Rome and Applewood Community Church and believers everywhere to think differently. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world that encourages people to live their lives as if they are in charge. To live their lives as if they are all important and God really has no place. To focus upon self and express no dependence upon Him, well, that's exactly what we were created for. And when we don't do that, I think it is just a huge travesty. Saying those lines this morning, I need you. I need you. I need you. I'm not sure that there are any words that are more precious to God than I need you. When the creature says to the one who created him or her for himself, I need you, I think if there are bells in heaven, they ring when we express those words. Not only by what we say, but by how we live. So, let's just real quickly read our second text from 1 John. It's in chapter 2. The apostle is, is writing to the believers and urging them not to love the world because love for the world leaves no room for the Father. You can stay seated for this one, but let's, let's read these words together. They'll be familiar, I'm sure, to, to many of us. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, love for the Father is not in you. For everything in the world... The cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and the boasting about what they have and do comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. All right, Don, let's put those phrases up there just so we can look at them again. Listen again to what Paul, John, John says here. For everything in the world... The cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and the boasting about what they have and do comes not from the Father, but from the world. John is saying these things don't come from God. They are coming from the world. They are coming from the world that is under the influence and, and, and much control of the enemy. So, <clears throat> so tell me, cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, boasting about what they have and do, who is that about? <laughs> me yeah yeah it is it is it is it's a it's a description of the human heart gratification of wants and desires dissatisfaction due to what others have and therefore i see what they have and i want what they have there's that sense of of personal worth that i so long to have and that can sometimes be achieved through boasting and, and others recognizing that in me and therefore I feel good about myself. Focus is upon self. That's the world system. That's what the enemy wants of all people because when we focus on self, we're not focused upon God. Just for fun, when you get a chance this afternoon or sometime this week, Go back to Genesis. Read the conversation between the woman and the serpent. Go to Matthew chapter 4 and read the conversation between Jesus and the serpent. And you'll see this pattern repeated. 
The enemy's deception is to get people thinking that the life that they live and their satisfaction in that life is all about them. Leave God out of it. He wants to put humanity on the center of a stage that God created for himself. A world in which all people would see his glory and ultimately worship him. My friends, we were created to be supporting cast members. None of us was created to be the lead. Created to be supporting cast and to take our lead from him who created us. And so... here's what I think is, is like the point that I want you to take with you this morning. If what we've covered here so far makes sense, and you're feeling this, this, this response of, well, I want to be more of a living sacrifice. I want to be more surrendered. We can have sort of this aha moment and think, oh, God deserves so much more from me. How many times in my life have I felt that way? And so our solution is to do what? It's to ratchet up the activities, to heighten our commitment. Got to pray more, read my Bible more, witness more, give more, sin less. Forget it. Don't go there. That's what we do. And that's all about us. How can I improve myself for God? Do you hear the lie? Don't go there. This is about surrender. This is about going back to the basics and thinking about who you are because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. This is not about what you do for God. God doesn't need you to do squat. What he saved you for was to be his beloved child so that you, instead of doing, would be in his presence and enjoy him. Is that just an awesome thought? You mean I don't have to do anything for God? He just wants me to be in His presence and to love Him and, 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 just, and let His love splash over my life? That's exactly it. Because if the enemy can convince us that we need to be doing more, then he's gotten our eyes off of the greatness of the love that required us to do nothing but to accept the free offer of his grace. It's about surrender. It's about asking the Spirit of God who who indwells God's children to take over everything, every part of my life. This is not about doing more for God. This is about surrender to God and awareness that the system in which I live wants me to think about me. The Spirit who lives in me gives me the power to think about God and to enjoy Him. So this is about doing less for me. This is about thinking less about me and thinking about God more. It's about having less concern for how people see me and more concern for how people see God in me. It's about thinking less about my circumstances and how they impact me and more thinking about how God is in those circumstances for His glory. It's about thinking less and having less concern for what the future holds for my life. 
having more concern about what the future may not hold for others. It's less concern for how my children are going to turn out, which, by the way, for pastors is really important because how my kids turn out impacts what you think of me. This is less, far less, concern for how my children are going to turn out and more concern for their souls that my children really know the love of God deep down in their beings. I don't care what their hair looks like or how many piercings they have or their tattoos. Is their heart captured by the love of God and passionate about Him? That's, that's what it's all about. Less concern about whether I am giving enough and more concern about why I live as if my possessions are all that important and I have the power to decide how they are to be used, why I make decisions and ask God to bless them rather than seeking Him for the decisions that He would have me make. Do you see where the thinking is? Okay, that's enough meddling for one morning. Praise team, come on up and and prepare to lead us as we respond. Where are we consulting, my friends, the Spirit of God in our lives? He has been given to us for that very reason. He is our counselor. He is our teacher. He is our encourager to guide us in living as sacrifices for the glory of God, not the glory of me. A living sacrifice doesn't give up certain things, picking and choosing as one pleases. No! A living sacrifice gives up thinking that they are in control of their lives and responsible to take care of themselves. That's why it's called a living sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of our life while we are still alive to him who loves us more than we can imagine. I close this morning with just a few words from Francis Chan. We have been reading this as a connect group after the service. I recommend the book if you've not had the opportunity to to read it. It is called Forgotten God. He references Paul's words to the Galatians when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse we were under so that we could receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promised spirit is not a small promise. Jesus suffered a grueling death so that I could have the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. How dare I take this for granted? Because of Jesus, I have received the promise and this spirit is not a remote force. He takes up residence in our lives, in our very bodies that we offer as sacrifices. And by by doing so, he brings with him a deep level of security. Again and again in the scriptures, we read about God's children being led by his spirit and how we have received the spirit of adoption. Brothers and sisters, we are desperately dependent upon God. It is incumbent upon us as his people to live like we really believe that so that he receives great glory through us. Amen.